Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone, depending on where you are. Welcome to today's seminar, where we will focus on COVID-19's short-term impacts on economies, food systems, and poverty in African and Asian countries, economy-wide estimates from economy-wide models. I'm Katarla Taylor, Events Manager at IFBRI, and I will moderate today's event. Thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who are watching this event recording. Developing countries responded to COVID-19 by implementing social distancing measures and limiting non-essential business operations. Agri-food systems and food supplies, although generally exempt from restrictions, have been exposed to policy disruptions and global market instability. To measure the impacts of COVID-19 on economies and food systems, IFPRI researchers worked alongside partners in several African and Asian countries to conduct economy-wide multiplier analysis, tracing direct and indirect spillover effects along and across supply chains. Results reveal substantial but varying levels of GDP losses during lockdowns, depending on policy design and implementation and countries' exposure to global markets. Despite policy exemptions, impacts on food systems account for about one quarter of GDP losses on average. Income losses are being felt by all segments of the population. Negative impacts persist, but gradually weaken as restrictive measures are lifted. Results call for targeted social protection, interventions in the short term, balanced with longer term planning and invest investing in the economic recovery. Today's seminar will present the modeling approach and showcase results from these three case studies in Nigeria, Myanmar, and Sudan. Our, part, our presenters will highlight how differences in policy design, implementation, and economic structure affect the experience with COVID-19, specifically for food systems and poverty in these countries. We're eager to hear from you. So to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presentations, we invite you to submit your questions on ifbri.org or through our various social media channels, including Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfBree on Twitter. We have an exciting program lined up for you, and I will now call on Frank Place, who is the director of the CGIAR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets, to give us opening remarks. Frank? Thank you very much, Katarla, and hello to everyone listening to this live event or to a recording in the future. COVID-19 has reached all corners of the world with its health, economic, and social effects unfolding differently depending on local circumstances and importantly on government's policy responses such as lockdowns. On a daily basis, governments are evaluating whether and for how long to continue current policy responses or to make adaptations in an attempt to stem health and economic losses. Many countries have been seeking advice on these issues and some of that demand has come to IFPRI, who has over the years built up a strong reputation for its ex-ante modeling work and for its demand-driven policy support. The economy-wide modeling tools in IFPRI are truly unique and I am proud that PIM has contributed to their continuous upgrading to include more countries, more disaggregation of their economies, a wider range of outcomes, and importantly, the most recent data. I wish to thank the many direct funders of PIM and also to recognize the significant resources provided by USAID 
and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation over the years in support of the national economy-wide work. The presenters today are among a larger group who have been providing insights on impacts of alternative strategies, investments, and policies to national governments for many years. I would like to commend them, including their national partners, for their tireless efforts working at all times of the day and night to meet the global thirst for analysis on COVID-19. I have been impressed by the first analyses I saw from the team a few weeks ago, and I'm eager to listen to some of their more recent findings. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Katarla, who will introduce the next speaker. Thank you, Frank, for your remarks. Our first speaker is Carl Powell, who is a senior research fellow here at IFPRI. Carl, over to you. Thank you, Katala. Uh, so I'll kick off by talking us through the social accounting matrix multiplier modeling framework that we developed uh, to measure the impacts of uh, COVID-19 on our economies. And when I say developed, um, this is a modeling approach that has been around for, for perhaps 80 years. And so we really, we really just adjusted or adapted it to the current context. Next slide, please. So most of the country partners that we work with understand the the, the basic concept that the flatter you want your contagion curve to be, the more you'll need to lock down your country and ultimately the more fiscal space you'll need to require or, or you'll require to mitigate the recession. Now, even before we start talking about mitigative measures, uh, countries really needed to understand what are the impacts of these different uh, policy measures that they have available to them. So we've seen across the world countries adopting broadly similar methods for or policies to, to deal with, uh, with, uh, with the coronavirus. And this entailed social distancing measures and travel restrictions to the more extreme lockdown measures that we've seen where, where non-essential economic activities have been shut down for a period of time. But the way these measures have been implemented have differed quite a bit across countries in terms of uh, sectoral and geographic coverage or how essential services or, or businesses were, were defined. Um, and and in, t in, in terms of, um, yeah, so, so sorry, we, we've skipped a slide, but just uh, the last point on the previous slide, we're also interested in, in how, how countries are affected by external shocks. Um, and so our modeling approach is really about measuring the impact of both these domestic measures and the external shocks. Next slide, please. So why a SAM multiplier framework? Well, SAM-based models allow us to trace the direct and indirect effect of, of shocks along and across supply chains. And that's because we capture these inter-industry linkage in the social accounting matrix uh, model or data framework. And beyond that, we then link to the social accounts as well. So we have links to employment, household income, and poverty. So it gives you an economy-wide perspective. And so ultimately what we've come up with is a, is a framework that allows us to systematically um, compare impacts across countries and also validate some of the growth projections that, 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 that have been put out there. And then from IFPRI's perspective, uh, we're interested in, in a more in-depth look at the agri-food system. And so as Katala said, even though these, you know, a lot of the, the, the food system sectors were exempted from, from lockdown measures, we, we, we do believe that there would be significant spillover effects given these inter-industry linkages which we capture in the model. Now, fixed price models have been criticized um, for having various shortcomings, but in the context here, it's, it's very relevant. Um, we have an almost catastrophic lockdown of both demand and supply, and so we simply don't have a market price that will bring us back to equilibrium. So it's actually very useful to have a framework which kind of locks down the market, but um, still pr provides a, an accounting or a multiplier framework to, to estimate these shocks. Next slide, please. So 
the, the multiplier model is based on this familiar concept of uh, the circular flow of resources in the economy. So we start off by identifying our exogenous final demand components. Typically in these frameworks, it would include investments, government and exports. We also treat household demand as exogenous uh, simply uh, because that allows us to directly shock household demand and it also ensures that your multipliers are not unrealistically high. So when you have an increase in demand, for example, the commodity market responds by uh, sourcing more imports and demanding more from local producers. And as these producers start producing, they go back to the commodity market and that's where you're you know, to buy intermediate inputs and that's where we start seeing our domestic multiplier effects. And producers also um, increase employment and so you have the link back to household in terms of um, you know via employment in terms of household income and ultimately poverty so we'll shock these final demand vectors to to serve as a proxy for either the supply or demand uh, side shocks that policies uh, bring about next slide please so the way we we set this up is we define 18 impact channels that we've kind of um, used across all studies to 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 look at the impact of COVID-19 uh, not all these impact channels are activated, but it's just a useful way to decompose our results, as you'll see from our presenters later on. Each of these impact channels are linked to, to one or more of 86 sectors in a typical SAM model. Um, and the shocks are, are defined at sector level and informed by policy, international evidence, and we waited for seasonal effects and also for geographical targeting. For example, if the lockdown is only imposed in an urban area, then we would scale the shock to, to reflect the, the urban area's share in national GDP. And then ultimately, it's validated by in-country partners who trace or track the media and engage with policymakers and really have a better feeling for how these policies actually play out in practice. And so we'll be presenting two sets of results. The first is the impact during the lockdown, typically that took place somewhere between March and April in most countries, and it ranged from two weeks to eight weeks of having a full lockdown. And then we have a second set of results where we look at the calendar year. So we kind of ease into lockdown measures uh, from the first quarter, and then following lockdown, we ease out of these lockdown measures again. Um, that can either be a, a, a fairly rapid easing or a slower easing. So we have different um, sets of results that we can share with you. I just need to point out that the Myanmar study actually runs over the financial year, which is October 2019, 2019 to September uh, 2020. So that's a slightly different reference period that Shin Shen will be talking about. Next slide, please. So in terms of key findings, we see substantial uh, variation in uh, GDP losses across the different countries. Uh, depending on the policy design and global exposure. And as Katala said as well, despite these exemptions uh, for the food sector, we do see significant impacts um, on food systems. It accounts for about a quarter of GDP losses and it's um, food services and agriculture exports. Uh, so food services being restaurants are particularly impacted. Wealthier urban households do face the larger income losses typically, and that's because of the fact that they are more likely attached through employment to those kinds of sectors that are being shut down. But because of these inter-industry linkages and, and links over into the rural sector, um, we do see that poorer and rural households are also affected. And we see very large poverty increases, especially in quarter two. And so that's something that policymakers need to, to really take note of. So economies eventually do recover. And for most of our models, we've kind of assumed a return to close to pre-crisis poverty levels by the end of the year. Um, that may seem so somewhat optimistic right now, um, but ultimately we do have a sharp downward revision in projected growth rates for 2020. And so my time is just about up, but I'll, I'll show you the last slide very briefly, just to give you a flavor 
These are the first nine countries that we worked on. I think we, we now at about uh, 12 countries. It just shows where the, the X's mark the, the initial projected growth rates and then the ranges, the bars show the range of GDP rates um, that, that our models suggest uh, we would achieve. And so you'll see we kind of centered around the IMF projection of a 3% contraction in developing countries this year. So with that, back to you, Carla, thank you. Katala, thank you. Great, thank you, Carl. Our next speaker is Kwa Andam, who is a research fellow and the country program leader in IFPRI, Nigeria. Kwa, the floor is yours. Thank you, Katala. I will describe four aspects of the findings for Nigeria. First, the impacts on national gross domestic product. Secondly, impacts on the agri-food system. Thirdly, the costs in terms of household income losses and the short-term increase in poverty. And then lastly, the likely recovery scenarios for Nigeria's economy. So the next slide describes the um, policy responses that were adopted in Nigeria. There were two levels of the policy response, a federal uh, government lockdown that was implemented in Lagos and Ogun states in the southwest. This is really the industrial hub of Nigeria. This also covered the federal capital territory in Abuja. This extension, this uh, lockdown was extended into Kano state as well um, in late April. And really this federal government lockdown represents about 40% of national GDP. Um, in addition to the federal uh, government lockdowns. There were state level lockdowns that also represented about a quarter of national GDP. So on the next slide, um, we are using the methods that Carl described to um, understand the impacts on national GDP. And the first chart on this slide shows that uh, during the lockdown, there was a loss of about 34.1% in national GDP. Um, just note this is for the period of the lockdown only. It amounts to about a $16.4 billion loss uh, during the period, uh, considering Nigeria's overall annual GDP of about uh, $250 billion. Um, the, um, in terms of sectors, the largest impacts are in industry and services sectors. Um, agriculture has a smaller impact, but this is actually quite significant considering that these lockdowns in Nigeria, as in other countries, actually exempted the agriculture sector from any direct restrictive measures. And so that demonstrates the indirect impacts that uh, Carl mentioned. The, the second chart on, on this slide shows the impacts on the agri-food system. Um, that includes primary agriculture, but also off-farm activities such as processing, food trade, and transport. And for Nigeria, the agri-food system um, covers about 32.6% of GDP, whereas primary agriculture alone is about 21% of GDP. Um, what this chart is showing is that the losses um, in the um, agri-food sector were large overall, um, processing um, lost 26.7%, and food and trade, food trade and transport declined as well. But the really interesting point here is if you look at the food services sector, the last chart bar here on the on the right, the sector declined substantially by, by about 75.8% uh, during the lockdown. So the point here is that although the lockdown um, included exemptions for primary agricultural activities such as planting and also for food supply operations such as um, food transport, 
the agri-food system was still really exposed and really um, affected indirectly in an important way. And this shows, uh, we believe, the uh, importance of using these types of model frameworks that capture the inter-industry linkages and, and measure the indirect effects. So the question then is, what are the linkages that contributed to these losses in agri-food system GDP during the period? And we consider that question in the next slide. Um, so on, you, you will see here this chart that is showing the impact losses um, uh, for the agri-food system GDP by impact channel. And it shows that the suspension of uh, non-essential trade and the closure of the hospitality industry, so hotels, bars, and restaurants, together represent about 60% of the losses in the agri-food system during this period. So this, those are the two bars here at the top of this chart. Um, and the large impact of closing hotels, bars, and restaurants in itself is quite interesting because despite the small size of the food services sector in Nigeria, uh, we see that the linkages with other uh, subsectors within the agri-food system led to these large losses um, uh, that we are seeing through that impact channel. And you, uh, a similar um, point could be made for um, uh, the reduced uh, remittances as well coming to the country and how that affected um, losses in the agri-food uh, system. So the next um, set of slides will present the, the cost in terms of household income losses and poverty. Um, the first chart here on the top um, for on income losses shows that households overall lost about a third of their incomes on average during the lockdown. Um, income losses um, for non-poor households, so you see here in quintiles three and four, are, uh, are higher than those for the um, the poorer households in quintiles one and two, and also rural, non-farm, and urban households have uh, larger losses in their income than rural farm households, um, and that's because of the 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 fact that um, employment income and remittances are more important for the urban and rural non-farm households than for uh, the other households. Um, but the, the looking at the second chart, it's important to note that. Um, when, when we look at the poverty impacts, um, although the percentage point increase in poverty for urban households is higher than for rural households, you will see that in terms of the actual numbers, the, the rural, there are more rural households that fell into poverty during the lockdown period. Um, I'm going to conclude on the next slide on the likely recovery scenarios for Nigeria as the country has entered an extended phase of easing the lockdown restrictions since early May. And I'd like to make two points about the recovery scenarios here. The first is that in terms of national GDP losses, um, the chart shows that the, the losses for 2020 relatively relative to the baseline of end 2019 for three scenarios, slow, gradual, and fast recovery, indicate that the uh, pre-COVID path for Nigeria, 2.5% GDP growth, will unfortunately not be achieved due to COVID-19. And so in the, um, in the most optimistic scenario, um, the GDP growth rate is negative 6.8%. The second line here on the chart, um, down to the slow recovery scenario of um, a negative 11.4% change in GDP for the year. The second point um, on recovery scenario is that in terms of 
poverty impacts. In the short term, we see the poverty spike that I described earlier. That's 27 million uh, households falling to poverty during the lockdown period. Um, in the short term, mitigating poverty will require sustained support through social protection, but really a sustained recovery will require um, reversing the poverty impacts by promoting and pr protecting uh, employment, especially for the small and medium scale enterprises that are linked to the agri-food system. Thank you. Uh, with that, I'll turn it back to Katala. Thank you, Kwa. Our next speaker is Mariam Raouf, and she is a senior research associate at IFBRI. Mariam, over to you. Uh, thank you, Katarla. So I will be talking about uh, the, the impact of the COVID-19 on the Sudanese economy. Uh, please, the slide one. So this slide shows the timeline of how the, the, the COVID-19 cases have evaluated, uh, evaluated in, uh, in Sudan, starting from mid-March until, uh, until August. Uh, it was also that the Sudanese government has reacted quickly in response to the emergence of these new cases. The government has imposed partial lockdown, like closure of schools, universities, curfews, uh, prohibition of public transportation across the cities, this partial lockdown also uh, was strictly fo fo followed in the, the Khartoum, the, the, the capital, and to a lesser extent in the rest of the country. Uh, the government also has implemented several policies um, to curb uh, this, this pandemic, uh, such as giving like cash transfers to poorest households, increasing the, increasing the support to the health se sectors, uh, giving like um, some support of workers, uh, to allowances to workers who were uh, negatively affected. So we can say that Sudan uh, has applied a light lockdown with low confirmed cases relatively if, if compared to other countries. Next slide, please. So to, to assess the impact of the COVID-19 on the GDP, um, we had to determine how each of the global impact channels and each also of the domestic impact channels were likely affected by the COVID-19. We based our assumptions of sector level impacts on some preliminary data and some expert opinions. And once we had established this impact sector by sector, we used our sum multiplier model to assess the combined impacts on economic growth, uh, employment, and household income. And here, there is like a quick overview of our main findings. We estimated that COVID-19 crisis has led to a negative 13.8% decline in the Sudanese GDP uh, during the second quarter of 2020. Um, if we look at the economy-wide impact of COVID-19 at the sector level, we see that the service sector was the, the, the hardest hit by this crisis, followed by the industrial sector. The agriculture sector is the least affected uh, one, uh, namely because the, the livestock sector th uh, there is very important for the Sudanese economy and because of the closure of the cross-border trade with the neighboring countries, it has, this has uh, a little bit of negative impact on the agriculture sector. Uh, with regard to the food supply, it was exempt from most the restrictions, but it, it was still indirectly affected especially by the falling of the consumer incomes, and also it was uh, uh, indirectly affected by the closing of the hotels, restaurants, and bars. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, 
With regard to the sources of the GDP losses, um, we saw, uh, we wanted to know by, uh, by how much these domestic impact channels have contributed in the GDP losses. We saw that the closure of non-essential trade, restrictions on transport and travel, closure of business services, limiting const construction activities contributed the most to the decline in the Sudanese GDP. Restricting trade and transport account for around one third of the GDP losses. Next slide, please. And with regard to the effect on the employment, we can see that the reduction in the economic activity uh, have led to a temporary job losses by around 13% on the national level. Uh, around 1.4 million jobs, uh, job losses. And this was mainly driven by the decline in the service and, and industrial activities, and many of these activities are relatively more labor intensive. Um, next slide, please. And with regards to the, uh, to the impact on the household income, we can see that the decline in the economic activity have led to that all household ex uh, income all households have ex experienced an income loss by around 14.7% of their income. Um, specifically, urban and non-poor households are relatively more uh, uh, affected. Uh, but also the incomes of rural, lower income households, uh, they see their income also fall, and this mainly due to the effects of the disruption in the food system, as we saw on the, on the farm income. Uh, but we can also say that uh, the poor households might find it harder to cope uh, and recover. Next slide, please. We also ran the recovery scenarios for Sudan, and we can see that we can project a negative growth rate that is related to the COVID-19 for 2020, and it can range from negative 3.7% to negative 6.6% for 2020. And we also ran another scenario for, for Sudan um, because now the, the, the country is facing what we call waves of desert locust and this can cause like severe damage to the agriculture crops. So, so we also tested the combined effect of COVID-19 and this uh, crisis and we, and we estimated that the negative growth rate could reach between negative 4.8% to negative 9.8% under both fast and slow recovery uh, for the year 2020. And because of the some challenges that are related to the political transition in Sudan, uh, this may make the slow uh, recovery scenario uh, more likely uh, to happen. Thank you. Thank you, Mariam. Before we come to our next speaker, I would like to remind all of you watching online that you can submit your brief questions on ifri.org Facebook, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfree on Twitter. Our final speaker is Jinxin Diao. She is the Deputy Division Director in the Development Strategy and Governance Division at IFBRI. Jinxin, over to you. Well, I'm going to talk about Myanmar. So the Myanmar study uh, was jointly conducted with our country program in Myanmar. So many of our uh, Myanmar uh, local staff ha have been involved in this study. Our country program in Myanmar uh, is funded by USID, is a partner with MSU. In next slides, uh, similar as our previous uh, presentation, pre presenters, 
I, I'm going to focus on the economy-wide impact of for lockdown during the lockdown period. Unlike other countries, Myanmar has relative short for lockdown period. The, the union government and the state government issue stayed at home order for about two weeks. However, in most of time, the restrictions still exist in April. The presentation here, actually, when I talk about the full lockdown, basically is for these two weeks. So the, the state order, state home order, actually quite stringent. So most of economic activity uh, are shut down. Therefore, the impact on GDP is the largest amount of presentation we just heard. So national GDP fell about 41% during this period. Actually, it's mainly led by services and uh, industries. So compared with services industries, agriculture, decline agriculture is relatively modest uh, because most of agriculture activities are exempt from the shutdown shut, uh, shut, shut policies. Within uh, industry sector, contraction is the most affected industry uh, sector. In next slides, I focus on agri-food system. Even though agriculture alone uh, has relative modest impact, about 14% decline, if we look at the whole agri-food system, the impact is much larger. It's about uh, 40, uh, 24%. So the slides show you a different component of uh, agri-food system. Uh, beyond agriculture, downstream agro-processing, food transportation, and services are all uh, significant affected. The reason is uh, actually the 48% of the decline in agri-food system uh, is caused by closing manufacturer uh, factories. This is different from most of other countries because Myanmar has much bigger manufacturing uh, industry. This directly affects ag food processing, indirectly affects ag food related transportation and food services, much more than the, in, the indirect impact on agriculture. The second important uh, impact channel actually is external uh, channel. So 20% of decline in ag food system is caused by reduced export demand. This had a very important impact on agriculture directly uh, because Myanmar's agriculture actually uh, depend a lot on export. The third important channel is actually also external channel. It's a falling in remittance. So 13% decline in agriculture is caused by falling remittance. In next slides, I'm going to look at the the impact for the whole year, uh, physical year 2020 in Myanmar is used for all economic indicators running from last year, October, uh, to this year, September, uh, at the physical year 2020. So different from other countries, Myanmar actually start to be affected even before its own uh, lockdown policy because of the close to China and also COVID outbreak in the region. So in the slides, you can see growth in first quarter is assumed to be normal at 6.4%. However, 
However, growth slowed in second quarter to less than half of the normal growth, mainly due to the interruption of agriculture export to China. Most of such exports are cr uh, cross-border through, uh, through land. So, moreover, uh, my remittances actually are very important income source for Myanmar households. 24% households uh, have a remittance income. Many migrants actually work in Thailand. They lost job during this period. Obviously, the significant negative impact is still within the country's own policy in third quarter. So third quarter GDP has fallen sharply, as you can see. Uh, the difference between slow and fast recovery in this period actually is relatively modest. However, we expect actually growth start to slowly recover. So some uh, positive news have been heard in recent uh, days kind of support our uh, prediction. So under fast recovery scenario is possible for growth to uh, become positive. Overall, the, uh, the annual GDP growth can be modestly negative or modestly positive. Next slide. Uh, talking about impact on household uh, income, we can see the most of significant impact is in April. Uh, rural non-farm and urban households are most adversely affected during this period. However, recovery also uh, occurred mainly among non-agricultural economy, economy activities that help rural non-farm and urban households uh, recover most of their lost income, especially under fast recovery scenario. Even with fast recovery scenario, we expect household income will be 5% lower by the end of uh, uh, this year. Next slide, we will talk about uh, impact on poverty. Again, poverty is expected to rise during April across all household groups. So nationwide, actually poverty could be as high as 50%. In April, the poverty rises the most among rural non-farm households. We expect a 30% point greater than the pre-lockdown, uh, pre-shock uh, poverty rate. Economy recovery is expected to help reduce poverty as we see for September. However, even with fast recovering, national poverty rate is expected to be higher by the end of physical year than the pre-shock level. In terms of number, we are talking about 650,000 newly poor households. They are going to remain in poor under a slow recovering scenario and 350,000 under fast recovery scenario. Most of these households, these newly poor households that couldn't move out of poverty are in rural areas, roughly equally split between farm and non-farm households. Thanks. Great, thank you, Jinshin. We have two discussants joining us today, and I will first call on Chris Hillbrunner, who is the Division Chief of the Analysis and Learning Division in the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security at USAID. Chris, over to you. Thanks, Katarla. Um, and first, a big thanks to the uh, presenters on this webinar and the larger group of IFPRI researchers who've been taking on these modeling 
efforts and uh, a wider range of analytical work to help us unpack and better understand the impacts of COVID-19. Um, looking at the work that's been discussed today, um, this work has been um, has generated great interest within the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security, um, and it really helped uh, helped us understand um, the pathways through which COVID-19 has impacted uh, households and economies, and in turn really influenced uh, the types of response strategies that we're looking at moving forward. There's also been substantial interest on the part of missions. Um, there was a mention in one of the presentations about the close partnership between USAID and IFPRI in Myanmar, um, but other countries like Rwanda and Ghana, there's been um, substantial uh, discussion and collaboration uh, given the great interest in, in this work. Um, I'd like to highlight a couple of uh, particular um, aspects of this work that have really resonated. Um, one is, and this was alluded to at the beginning in Carl's presentation, this approach that directly works with uh, national governments. And not only does this improve the quality of the inputs to the modeling and a more nuanced understanding of the policies that are uh, so important in this context, but it also means that the work is very directly connected to decision makers. And so really highlighting, um, while this is you know, incredibly interesting work from a technical perspective, also making sure it's really connected into policy systems. Um, the second thing is this ability to use this approach to unpack, uh, particularly the agri-food system, to see where impacts are occurring and, you know, to then inform how we can both see the agri-food system as an area that's substantially impacted despite the lack of formal restrictions um, on that sector, but also, you know, the ability to use that sector as a driver for recovery, given the uh, its potential to drive economic growth and the large level of employment that is found within this sector. Um, the last thing that I think I would highlight is that there's been a, one of the ongoing themes of discussion uh, has been this discussion of where we're expecting to see impacts and among which populations. I um, mean, really trying to, um, have a nuanced understanding of, of how things may play out when we talk about these secondary impacts. And one example has been the discussion of impacts in rural versus urban areas. And, you know, at a very superficial level, a lot of discussion has focused on the fact that infection rates may be higher in urban areas or, you know, uh, economic impacts may be highest in urban areas. But one of the things that this analysis has allowed us to do is to really not only look at the size of impacts, but look at how that, how those impacts are likely to impact the number of people in poverty. And across most of the studies, the country level studies that IFPRI has done, while the size of the income impacts has been larger in urban areas. Uh, the number of people being pushed into poverty is actually larger in rural areas. And so this kind of nuance has really helped us in our discussions about the impacts of COVID. Um, so maybe I'll close by just uh, highlighting a couple of areas either for further discussion or 
or further work. Um, one is one question that we're really thinking about is these these questions about consumer and worker behavior. Um, you know, once formal lockdowns end and formal movement restrictions end. Um, what happens next and how do we gather the kind of information we need um, to really understand how residual um, consumer and worker behavior may continue to have uh, impacts on the agri-food system. Um, the second thing is to continue and deepen work on how the policy environment shapes COVID-19 impacts. One example would be to look more closely at the relationship between a more evidence-based policy system prior to COVID-19 and how that relates to the subsequent ability of a country to mitigate the primary and secondary impacts of the pandemic. We also think that continued outreach, particularly at the country level, to share these results and to engage directly uh, with decision makers is really important. And then finally, just this need to look beyond 2020. Um, I think one of the real questions that we struggle with right now is this question of persistence um, and what is going to happen when we get into 2021 and 2022 and beyond, and how are some of the impacts we're seeing going to evolve? So why don't I stop there and hand it back over to Katarla. Great, thank you, Chris. Our final discussant is Paul DeRoche, who is the Director of the Development Strategy and Governance Division at IFBRI. Paul, over to you. Thank you, Katarla. Uh, I have uh, three basic uh, comments. One, a little bit uh, talking about the methodology and the analysis that was done. Uh, and as was alluded to uh, by Frank at the beginning, uh, this work is only possible because of the investment that was done in, in building social accounting matrices, these integrated databases, uh, integrating the household surveys and the information on incomes and, and GDP accounts sectors. Uh, so it's building on that, um, uh, and and so that investment has was absolutely crucial. Uh, but re related to the actual analysis, perhaps some of the uh, presenters might want to comment on how they would expect different agricultural subsectors to be uh, affected in terms of the cereal crops or the fruits and vegetables and so forth. A, a big issue for agriculture is seasonality and the timing of these shocks and, and the uh, what climate patterns, the weather patterns in each of the countries differs. Uh, and so uh, one might expect that these short-term and, and perhaps medium-term effects uh, are, uh, have substantial uh, seasonal aspects to this. Uh, and, 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 and also, uh, it would be very interesting to see a year from now how these uh, analyses uh, seem to have been validated or, uh, or, or not, and to take a, a hard look at to what extent are we having an issue with not having enough data on how big the shocks were or perhaps on the, the structure of, of the economies and so forth. A, a, a second broad point is just medium term. and. Uh, it, many of these countries have, have borrowed heavily. 
there are perhaps severe macroeconomic imbalances that are, are coming into play and major adjustments may be needed. And that uh, may mean that uh, these debt burdens are going to have an impact on how much investment in the overall economy, but also in agriculture per se. Uh, and so I think that's a big issue looking forward. Uh, and then uh, finally, going forward on the analysis, uh, it, it was a, a decision right up front that uh, the, the team could not look at uh, price changes. It made a lot of sense uh, at the start. And, and I know that the plan of the team is to move forward and look at implications of, of changes in prices uh, as we go forward into the medium term and long term effects uh, of, of the COVID-19 and the different policies of the governments. And uh, I think we're all looking forward to seeing that kind of analysis as well. Back to you, Katarla. Great. Thank you, Paul, Chris, and to all of our speakers. We'll now move into the Q&A portion of the program. And we'd like to hear from as many of you as possible. And please, we'll ask you to be brief in stating your question and to please also include the name of your institution and your own name if you wish. You can, again, submit your questions via ifbree.org, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, LinkedIn, et cetera. So please go ahead and send those questions. The first question during this Q&A portion, I'll actually direct to you, Kwa, and it's coming in from someone named Assam, who's asking, in terms of GDP during lockdown in Nigeria, can you please give more details on the 13% drop in the agriculture sector? Hello, Katala. Um, thank you to the um, questioner for that question. Um, if you could please ask it again. I know that I had only the last part about the drop in agriculture. Uh, yes, Katala, sure. Could you please ask that question again. Sure. Uh, the, the submitter is just wondering if you can provide more information on the GDP uh, drop during the lockdown that you discussed in your presentation, specifically as it relates to the agriculture sector. You said you mentioned 13% drop in the ag sector. Okay, thank you. Um, so I, I would, I would uh, you know, first thing to say, I would point the, um, the questioner to a working paper that we have recently published that has a lot more information on the way that these impacts were um, measured. Um, and secondly, a, a brief response. So all of these impacts are looking at agricultural activity, right? They're looking at um, uh, uh, the, the impacts of the restrictions on productive um, activities. Um, so for the agriculture sector, um, even though, as I mentioned, even though there were exemptions provided for primary agricultural activities, a lot of the drop that you're seeing um, uh, in that 13.1% um, is due to the linkages between agriculture and other parts of the economy. And so in terms of uh, that impact, the drop, uh, the, drop in, um, the drop in demand for agricultural um, products is what drives that, uh, that reduction in ag GDP. Um, during the lockdown period. Thank you. Great, thank you, Kwa. Next, I'll come to you, uh, Jinshin, and this question is coming 
from Polly Legrand at DFID in the UK. In the case of Myanmar, uh, Polly would like to know what is the fall in GDP relative to the forecasted GDP or GDP in the previous period for Myanmar, if you have any insight on that. Uh, yes, I agree. This is a good question. Since, since uh, our projection number is more prospective to, uh, than most of uh, other uh, projections. So I'm, I've actually had adjusted their projection in recent years, recent months, but still quite early. Uh, the last one was in, I think, in June. Uh, still, uh, I, my projection still expect to have a, a uh, modest positive uh, GDP growth rate. Remember before uh, crisis, before this uh, COVID outbreak, Myanmar actually enjoyed very rapid growth for 10 years. So the growth slowly uh, slowed down in recent years, but still about 6-7% each year. That's why in my slide, the first quarter, we still follow the uh, World Bank projection of 6.4% growth. So, so uh, in in our projection, we expect actually it is possible to have a positive growth uh, following their physical year by the end of September, but still the growth rate is much modest than uh, most of other projections. Uh, great, thank you, Jinchen. And Carl, a question for you. It's uh, coming in from a a viewer who didn't identify themselves, but they're wondering how was the informal hidden economy captured in the SAM model explained? Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so the social accounting matrix is, is built up from national accounts data and from, from household survey data. Um, so it is. It does capture, in in principle, the the whole economy, including including informal sectors, as to the extent that informal sectors are included in national accounts. Obviously, there are some some activities that fall through the cracks. Um, so so that's just on the data side. On the on the impact side, we did you know contemplate this idea um, of actually uh, you know you know, accounting for the fact that some of these policies might not be enforced as much in your in more informal sectors. So if you have a lockdown in manufacturing, for example, if it's someone who's doing, you know, backyard mechanic work, for example, uh, government officials might not come around and close his shop, uh, whereas someone who has a, a shop on the high street might be affected. Um, we, we tried to, in the end, incorporate as much of that as possible in our engagement with country partners to try and understand how these policies were actually implemented and enforced on the ground. So, so yes, we, we, we do account for it as much as we, we possibly can. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So at this point, I'll actually turn it back over to Paul. Uh, he had some questions in his discussant remarks. But Paul, if there are any questions you'd like to direct to the panel, feel free. Uh, thank you, Katarla. Uh, an, another question, in addition to the questions I had mentioned earlier, uh, and that question on medium-term development strategy, if anybody would like to address that, that would be great. But in addition, in, addition, uh, in the countries where uh, we've done these studies, have you seen reports of disruption to agricultural production per se? The models have assumed that there is no major disruption uh, directly. It's a demand effect on agriculture. And, and have you seen that uh, in, 
on the ground in terms of the uh, reports of what's been happening in, in your countries that you've studied? Um, Kuntala, I can I can step in. This is Carl. Um, yeah. So so in terms of the agriculture, I, th I think most most countries were very adamant that agriculture is exempt, um, and so we were we were at this stage kind of careful about not running scenarios where we have you know because we, we kind of focused on the policies you know stated policies and and how they are implemented and so so agriculture has definitely been exempt. Certainly, there are reports, and and this is coming. I, th I think Chris referred to. Um, to kind of the, the need to kind of understand longer term how, how consumers and workers are actually being affected. Um, and, and this is kind of information that we'll gather from, from monitoring reports and surveys that are currently out there to understand how, you know, whether there were any unintended consequences for the agricultural sector. Um, and, and certainly, yes, I, th I think we, we hear some reports already and in, in Ghana where I'm familiar, more familiar with, with, with what's happening on the ground. Um, there were some reports of, of farmers not planting as much. The commodity exchanges saying they're not getting, um, you know, as much commodity into their warehouses as they did before, which might be an early indication that, that commercial farmers at least are a little bit cautious about how much they plant and how much surplus they produce, just given all this uncertainty. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of countries actually just went through their planting seasons now. And so it'll be interesting to see early reports on crop estimates and so on to see if there has been a supply response. Um, but I could imagine that that, that there would have been. Um, also in Ghana, we we just concluded a survey, um, a household survey, where we did add some some COVID-related questions, and and people are concerned about access to markets and 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 actually markets being uh, being formally you know active at the moment, and and whether they would be able to sell produce, and that would certainly again for the more commercial side of the sector um, have an impact. Yes, I, I also like to add in some uh, information from uh, uh, Myanmar side. So during our study, actually our uh, local researchers have done interview, uh, phone interview with informal interview with many uh, traders and uh, also some uh, farm organization. So even though the national policy uh, for lockdown exam agriculture but at the local level in some villages, they actually completely block the road. So farmers couldn't have, uh, couldn't have a seasonal worker to come to work. So really interrupt their, uh, uh, I think it's a, so for some crop actually is their planting season, some crop is their harvest season. The second direct impact for Myanmar actually is from uh, trade with China. So China closed uh, border uh, in late, February, so it's at the peak of uh, 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 the uh, fruit export season. So a lot of fruit actually was stuck at the border and uh, couldn't uh, uh, go to China. Actually, traders completely lost uh, their income. Most recently, uh, our Myanmar country program has started to do phone survey. They have done survey for uh, mechanization service provider for lifestyle sector, for poultry sector, for fishery sector. So the impact on fish sector actually is much more significant, especially for this kind of crop, they of this kind of commodity, they really need to have a very smooth logistic and the supply chain 
has been uh, frequently interrupted by many restrictions are still there. Thanks. Great, thank you. Does anyone else want to come in before we move forward? Yes, Katala, um, a couple of sure. responses here um, for Ni on Nigeria. Um, in terms of medium term investments and policy planning, Nigeria is actually at the point where um, the country is developing uh, medium term um, plans um, for 20, uh, 21 to 25 and also 20, up to 2030 and then a longer term uh, Nigeria agenda 2050. Um, and we have been able to feed in some of these uh, findings into that process. I think this also goes to Chris's point about evidence-based decision making and the, and, the, and the way that these kinds of uh, findings can be helpful um, for the policy process. Um, I, I would say in terms of the actual um, investments, um, more would, would need to find out more from these types of analyses, but also from um, upcoming work, uh, including phone surveys on, on household impacts in order to guide those, uh, those policy discussions. Um, and then on, in terms of uh, the agricultural activities, uh, Paul, your second question about uh, reports on what's actually happening, we have, um, Two, um, two reports that we received during this period of information gathering. The first on the impacts uh, in, in terms of uh, tra food transport, um, that uh, because um, the exemptions were provided for, um, for agricultural activities, but there wasn't any um, direct actually um, exemption, direct actual uh, uh, passes or exemptions that, um, that food processes could uh, could could obtain at the beginning. Um, they were restricted in in, in conveying um, food products to processing points. So that's um, that's that's one uh, one finding that we gathered uh, during the information gathering phase. The other the other point is about um, uh, inputs. That there were some restrictions uh, on the transport of fertilizer, um, especially during uh, March and April. Um, although uh, latest reports are that some of that has been has been cleared up, most of that has been cleared up. Thank you. Great, thank you, Kwa. Does anyone else care to come in? Okay. So I would actually like to follow on Kwa's comments and ask you, Chris. A couple questions are coming in on given these findings and policy recommendations. Does this shift what uh, donor agencies are prioritizing at this stage. Any thoughts on what these recommendations are doing to your own processes and priorities? Thanks, Katarla. Um, I think it, big picture, uh, these analyses along with other kinds of analysis and conversations that we're having um, you know, the number one issue that, that gets raised is in, when we talk about the impact pathways is income and employment um, and the various ways in which uh, COVID-19 has affected that, whether it's through movement restrictions, reduced demand, um, limits on borrowing for small and medium enterprises. And so I think our primary takeaway to date is that this suggests that the areas that 
RFS and USAID have been investing in in many of these countries are really um, areas that we need to continue to focus on. Um, inclusive agricultural-led growth, um, employment creation, those kinds of things, um, really helping countries move towards agricultural transformation. So I think um, while there are specific cases where um, specific country analyses are you know, giving us that nuance about response that I mentioned, I think the big picture really is that a continued investment in a lot of the uh, areas we've invested in to date is really uh, the way to go. Great, uh, thank you, Chris. I have a question, Mariam, for you, a couple questions that came in, and it's mostly around uh, the source of the data in, in Sudan. You, your presentation focused on Sudan, and a couple of the questions are asking, um, where were you able to source that data on the household income and poverty uh, that you shared? Um, well, thank you for this question. Um, well, honestly, for Sudan, uh, there is a little bit of uh, scarcity about the data that were available to us. Um, but we relied on um, uh, SAM uh, that was built in 2012. Um, and from uh, the SAM, we, we, we could, uh, I mean, uh, assess the impact on the, uh, on the household income, the changes in the household income, for example. But also we updated the numbers of GDP for 2019, and we took it uh, from the IMF. Yeah. I think it was from the consultation four of the IMF. It was published by the IMF. Uh, honestly, we had, I mean, uh, several talks. We tried to get the data from national sources, but they were not up to date. So um, the, 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 we got from 2016 or 17. So we had to work with more updated data for 2019. So we had to go uh, to international sources, especially for the, uh, for the, the GDP and the employment as well. We relied on some ILO estimates for the employment by, by sectors. Um, so that's, um, that's the data about the, uh, the, uh, the Sudan. Also for, for the agriculture crops, uh, we consulted the, the data sources from FAO, from the FAO data sources. Um, I think that's all. Yeah, this is, this is with regards to the data sources for Sudan. Great, thank you. And this is a question uh, for Carl and I guess for uh, several of you, if you're interested. Um, the question is coming from Kunduz Maslik Kanova at FAO. And they're asking is, despite agriculture being exempt, disruptions occur due to unavailability of inputs, transport, weak coordination, et cetera. Uh, did these studies capture these issues and um, anything on restrictions that was faced by the processing sector. Just basically some of these, uh, did, it, did your studies account for these types of disruptions? Um, yeah, it's a good question. It's, and it's similar to, to a question before. I, I think if we didn't have a, a, a formal policy that restricted agricultural activities, we didn't at this stage simulate that. We wanted to show countries or governments what is the impact of their, um, of, of their policies that they introduce. We also had some external shocks. So in instances where agriculture is a major exporting sector, for example, and we believe 
um, cocoa, for example, in Ghana again, or livestock in Sudan, I think was was mentioned, uh, we might see some export shocks filtering in. But uh, unless there was a, uh, an explicit policy that restricted inputs or restricted transport of agricultural inputs, and that was rarely the case. Um, I, I'm not aware of any countries where that was an explicit policy decision to restrict those those inputs. We didn't simulate it at this point. So so one could argue that in, in that sense, we, we under potentially underreporting the the impacts but as i said we wanted to focus on 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 the impacts of policies again you know as we as we gather more information um you know on 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 what's actually happening out in the in, in the in, in in the field and in in, in rural sectors uh, we could obviously you know use the same framework or 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 cge model framework down the line to to examine some of these unintended consequences of of covid 19 policies thank you Thank you. And Jinshin, you wanted to come in as well? You're muted, Jinshin. Yeah, so for Myanmar, it's, uh, I think it's slightly different from uh, most of other countries. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes. Uh, so, and, so ba basically, uh, given the importance of export uh, agriculture in Myanmar, we do consider the direct impact uh, through uh, import uh, ex export channel. So, so that's why you see in my presentation, even in the uh, second quarter, uh, January, March, uh, the economy has been affected. Actually, I didn't show the impact on agriculture. Agriculture growth even turned to negative in that quarter. So the, the second important uh, impact channel that directly affect agriculture uh, actually is, uh, is fishery industry. So we, we, we do consider the direct shock on fishery sector. It's a booming sector in the country. And uh, so even though maybe the impact on the whole economy is small, but for this sector itself, actually we consider direct impact. Thanks. Thank you, Jinshin. Uh, a question has come in from Bob Balch at IFPRI, and he's asking about the impact of tourism declines on and COVID-19. Is there a reason that this information is not included or is that a function of just the selection of countries about the declines in tourism and that being an impact channel? Hi, this is this is Carl. So, um, yeah, it, 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 the tourism is, you know, tourism expenditure is captured in in our export accounts under um, under transport services. So that's flight tickets or under um, in in hotels and accommodation. So we have a sector where where tourists do where tourist expenditures are captured, um, and so for most countries, this would be captured under the the export uh, impact channel. Uh, so yes, we certainly did account for it, and and the country. Like Malawi, where where Bob is uh, is is writing uh, from, um, obviously has a has a relatively large tourism sector, and so um, you know we we certainly did take into take that into account in those countries. Um, I guess in the in the countries that we that we presented today, I'm not sure Shenzhen about uh, Myanmar, but Sudan and Nigeria tourism wasn't a major impact channel for either of those countries, so um, we didn't highlight those results. Yeah, for. 
for Myanmar, actually, tourism is important, very, very important. So, like Kali said, uh, tourism itself is not sector. So we have to think about how uh, falling tourist uh, income, uh, what kind of impact channel we can capture. Like Kali said, we basically capture through the export of uh, service sector, so including transportation, hotel, and many other things. Within the country, the decline uh, demand on hotel actually is not just domestic demand. A lot of actually is uh, from foreigners. So that's why we do not report tourists as a sector, but we definitely capture the tourist impact uh, in the simulation. Great, thank you, Junshin and Carl. Uh, we have time for one last question and I will give that to Paul. So Paul, you get to ask the last question and select the presenter who will respond to that. Over to you, Paul. Okay. Uh, in, in, in light of all the analysis that, that you've done, would, would anybody like to comment on what policy measures do they think would be most important to take now in, in the countries you've looked at in terms of agriculture or in terms of, of poverty? I, I can start, but I think others should uh, should come in as well. Um, you know, I think you know, given that we've collaborated closely with with country governments, we have a lot of examples already of governments now requesting us to to continue collaborating with them to to help understand the impact of some of the short term mitigative measures that are being implemented. So, so we've seen in many countries things like um, you know cash transfers or tax breaks for for workers or wage subsidies being implemented. Uh, for, for small businesses, we see credit subsidies or just injections into banks to improve liquidity, etc. Um, and, and other forms of kind of business stimulus packages that are being introduced. Um, so certainly a kind of a, an add on to our short term analysis would be to start accounting for some of that in our analysis. We haven't done that yet simply because we, you know, at the time when we started this, we didn't have good information about the actual budget allocations. Um, again, just to use an example from, from Ghana, I think, um, you know, in, in Ghana, something like 200 million US dollars has been allocated to a coronavirus alleviation program. Um, but we estimate the GDP losses uh, over the course of the year to be around 2.4 billion. So, so even these short-term measures are, are, are likely only going to, to fill a, or, you know, uh, cover a small part of the of the GDP loss that we are going to experience. Um, medium to longer term, I think Chris referred to this. He said, you know, it, it, it sounds to them and, and, and it looks to me as well that, you know, the policies that we've been promoting for a very long time, you know, investing in, in increased resilience of households, uh, strengthening value chains, especially food value chains, etc. These types of investments are going to remain important in the future and perhaps, um, you know, COVID-19 is an opportunity again to demonstrate the importance of those types of investments. Um, and and uh, again, something that uh, I think Chris mentioned, you know, just kind of demonstrate again, um, you know, the, the the potential for the agri-food system to to be a, a driver of the recovery process. And so, you know, as we start looking longer term, I think that's where we want to focus on is is to kind of re-emphasize the fact that traditional investments in resilience and value chains um, are important and that agriculture and the broader agri-food system is an important driver of poverty redu reduction and growth in developing countries. So I'll, I'll, I'll hand over back to you guys. Would anyone else like to uh, respond to Paul's question? 
Yes, I, I like to edit something on Myanmar's side. So I think that for the support for agriculture, more and more countries' governments uh, start to realize it should be a system approach. It's not narrowly defined, just uh, from agriculture. So for Myanmar, actually, the most important thing is actually that most of uh, people say is a weak de uh, demand. The weak demand coming from external channel, uh, also from domestic channel. For external channel, uh, uh, government try very hard to actually to reduce uh, the barriers for trade. So to uh, approach different country to explore additional market beyond China. Also to have a lot of discussion with China to increase rice and other things export to China. For domestic China, actually, if we can uh, have a high transfer program, start quickly to target those households actually were affected during COVID period, for example, a lot of households, they lost remittance income, so they can create a domestic demand for agriculture goods, therefore can actually uh, give agriculture a, a boom. Thanks. Great, thank you. We are out of time. So I'd like to thank all of our presenters for responding to the questions from our audience and our audience for submitting it. At this point, I'll now call on John McDermott, who will give us closing remarks. John is the director of the CGIAR Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health. John, over to you. Uh, thank you, Katarla. Um, so first, I'd just like to add my thanks and congratulations to the presenters and all their colleagues in the, in the central and, and country teams and the funders who had the vision and built this capability over time. From the COVID response side, it's really helped us to understand more differentiated responses, what's happening differently in countries. And this has been very useful information to us. Now, um, there's been lots of great information shared. I'd just like to emphasize three lessons of things that I think we need to pay attention to moving forward. The first is that you've heard that lockdowns have led to very important economic contraction. Um, and that's fine if you have even a severe lockdown, but it's of short duration, and then we can manage or eliminate the viral transmission. And sadly, that's not happening in many countries. Now we're going to have to come back with much more balanced and nuanced approaches, looking at how do we manage kind of movement control, public health measures, and fit those into the measures we need for economic recovery, food system transformation, social, social programs. And that balancing is going to be critical. Um, you've heard a lot of seeds of, of things that people are learning and that people are trying in countries, but I think that's, that's a critical thing. The second thing is, um, as you've heard, is this initial snapshot has really exposed the importance of inequities and the real harm done to poor and vulnerable people. And Chris emphasized this quite a bit among, among others. Um, so, so most of the countries we're talking about have limited financial capabilities. So how are they going to be smart about directing those to urgently needed actions for social safety nets, whether they're cash or food, or for key programs around nutrition and women's empowerment that are gonna be very important for regaining some of the positive development trajectories we've had. And finally, the last one is 
food systems are changing, economic transformation is happening very quickly in low and middle income countries. And a huge benefit of that and, and good work that's been going on in the past decade has really been around employment and income. And you've seen the tremendous job losses, especially kind of new and emerging sectors around food services, food distribution, food processing that didn't exist decades ago, especially in low income countries. Um, but how do we look at, how do we kind of recover those job losses, give the support to small and medium enterprises, enable them to do their jobs? To me, that's a crucial factor going forward in, in, in the recovery phase. So I'd like to thank everybody and hand back to Katarla to close us off. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. And thank you to everyone for joining today's seminar. We invite you to join us next Tuesday, August 18th at 9.30 a.m. EDT for our seminar on COVID-19 and the role of agriculture ecosystem health interface. Stay safe, everyone.